You know I've raved about Outer before, and I love my Outer sofa, outdoor dining table, and chairs. I've had them for over a year, and let me tell you, they've been through everything from rainstorms to scorching sun and still look brand new. That's because Outer makes outdoor furniture that's actually designed for the outdoors. From using incredibly durable and sustainable materials to developing innovative solutions like the Outer Shell Cover, which protects my sofa and dining table against dust, debris, and dirt. No more soggy cushions or dusty tabletops. My outer setup is always clean, dry, and ready to be enjoyed anytime I want. Head to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see Outer's range of outdoor furniture, fire pits, and accessories. The Founder Hour listeners get an exclusive 10% off for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. So elevate your outdoor space with Outer. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Steve Coffer, appreciate you joining us here on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Uh, So you grew up not too far from here. I think I read in Hollywood. So what was, what was that like? What was life like for you, you know, in growing up in, I guess, LA? So, uh, uh the born in Hollywood tends to be one of my favorite, uh, trivia questions because <laughs> I'm really the least Hollywood ish person you're likely to come across, but technically was born in Hollywood, lived there for a couple of months. And then, uh, uh, Encino and part of the San Fernando Valley, uh, then moved out, uh, the West side Pacific Palisades and Malibu. And then uh, at college time, went went east. So uh, 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 love L.A., uh, enjoy being back as often as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I feel fortunate to have grown up here. What kind of kid was, you know, young Steve? You know, what were, what were you into? Let's see, I, I was uh, a pretty outdoors kid. Uh, that was in the day when like, Hey, you come home from school, you get your homework done and you go out and play and you come back when it got dark. And, uh, uh, for the elementary and and high school years, that was pretty much the way it was. Uh, you know, I, uh, even though we lived close to the beach at the time, uh, and I knew how to body surf and enjoyed it. I was never part of the surfing crowd because that meant getting up at Breaking five o'clock in the sure. morning, and that was just not my style. I was the late sleeper, uh, but I enjoyed skateboarding uh, and uh, uh, and just you know hanging out with friends. I was good in school, uh, pretty careful, self uh, self motivated to get my homework done, so parents wouldn't yell at me. Yeah, that worked. What what was what did what did your parents do? Like, what was their background? Uh, my father was a, a trial attorney. Uh, litigator in downtown Los Angeles firm. And my mom had been a school teacher uh, before she kind of gave that up to raise us kids. Did you ever have any interest in going the teaching or the legal route? Uh, No. I mean, teaching uh, later became like, I I enjoy sharing wisdom to the degree that I I have any. uh, I enjoy the mentoring aspect that comes with being CEO of a company. I but the notion of going in and teaching the same syllabus every semester, right, yeah, yeah. like, oh, no, 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 couldn't yeah. do that. And it's the like notion a checklist of, of items, and I got to just cross them off my list, and regurgitate content. 
Yeah, not not my style. Not I, uh, being a lawyer, no, my father actually uh, uh, had suggested uh, that uh, that maybe I didn't have the the personality or the tenacity to to be a, a lawyer. We would uh, enjoy our debates around the dinner table, uh, but I was a bit more scientifically or, or math minded, uh, engineering minded, right. you could say. Just naturally, you were that way. Yeah, I, I like building stuff. I like solving problems. I like, you know, at the time, I like math equations. I entered college as a uh, expected to be physics major, whereupon I met some other physics majors and said, like, oh, there's no way I can handle this. <laughs> Switched over to be a math major, which I was, you know, good at, but it's like, what was I going to do with a math major? And then I fell into computer science and absolutely loved it. So kind of graduated with a CS degree. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned going to school on the East Coast, which usually means you went to, to Harvard or MIT or whatever. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, clearly you were a good student. Uh, I think you saw, I saw you went to Harvard. Um, clearly you were a great student. And, you know, I think so was, at the time, what was like computer science? You know, what did it mean? What, you know, what were some options for you like that you thought you would do after college studying computer science yeah when i when i started college it it was truly a hobby i had taken a little dabble in a computer science not even elective it was a club in high school uh and we were just like crazy old stuff in college i i had a summer intern uh, i had a summer job doing some QA for a computer company that was based out here. And I had a, an Apple II that I learned how to do some assembly language programming in because I had the book and I had time and it seemed like it would be fun. Uh, it wasn't until my senior year at Harvard in 1984 that they even created a computer science major, but I had already taken a bunch of the computer science classes and I, it it's magic when you can find something that you really enjoy doing and that also has great job prospects. And even then, computer programming, yeah, that's a perfectly good field to go into. And so uh, I expected to uh, graduate with a computer science degree and go work for somebody in the software space. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> I certainly use my computer science skills, but not that way. Yeah. And Steve, at the time, I mean, Pat and I grew up in a different time where you're expected to almost have this like path and to kind of have things figured out by college and say, oh, I'm going to go to this job and I'm going to be in this field. And then that's kind of how I'm going to rise. What was the landscape of, you know, education to early career like at that time? I mean, were people kind of the same way as they are now? Or was it just like, we'll take anything that pays us and we'll figure things out as we go along? I'd say most of my peers were in the, hey, I want to go into medicine, so what's my pre-med path at school? Check mark. Yep. Uh, most everyone else, which was clearly the majority of the other students, mm -hmm. were like, hey, I want to have a fun time in college. Right. I want to learn some stuff. I'm sure I'll find a job after. Right. And uh, by senior year, people were thinking, holy shit, I'm about to be kicked out of this lovely environment and have to go right. uh, earn a living. <laughs> what can I go do? Right. Uh, but you know, I would say the number of people I remember outside of medicine 
that had a career plan in mind was was very few. Right. And I was certainly in that camp. I'm right. like, I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't too concerned about being able to find something. Uh, and kind of like stumbled into the, the, the first entrepreneurial idea that we had. And and was that in while you were still in school or was that after you had graduated? Uh, it was actually still in school. We came up, uh, a couple of friends and I came up with uh, this idea to write, uh, technically, uh, an interpreter for the C programming language, which was just something that other, you know, uh, uh, other programmers would understand and no one else in the world would. Uh, we went about writing that as part of our, call it a senior thesis. It wasn't really a thesis, but more of an independent project. Uh, which was uh, a lot of fun. We didn't finish it, but then like, hey, we saw that maybe we could do a business out of this, and we went ahead and started a company right out of school, which led us, you know, led me down that entrepreneurial route where so many of my other friends were getting nicely paying jobs at right. computer companies, and here I was, you know, doing some odd job programming for 15 bucks an hour and happy to have something that uh, that paid the rent while myself and my friends were busy trying to build this new software company and you know from an investor perspective i give a a lot of credit to the investor that finally put in a few dollars because you know three kids with a nice degree and no idea how to run a company and you know mentorship wasn't something we were great at at the time right. in terms of having a great set of advisors, but we still managed to like create something, a product that worked and, uh, and we grew it. We grew it to 15, 20 million in revenue. I imagine the landscape of entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur was very different in the mid eighties when you were graduating college as it is, as opposed to what it is now where, you know, it's become this thing to be an entrepreneur. I mean, was the word entrepreneur even something that was talked about at the time, or was it just I'm starting a business? Yeah, I'm a the, business owner. Yeah, you're right. It, it, the, there was no course in entrepreneurism. Right. Uh, there weren't the networks that exist now. Uh, you were off to start a business, and we were off to start a software business, right. and that wasn't perceived as oh wow, how cool is right, that? Right. It was like Oh, you know, with the little thought bubble, is that because you couldn't get another job or are you really, you know, what is that going to do? And I, uh, there's certainly a lot more cachet around it. Were there other software companies that were, I imagine there were, but like, what were some of the other software companies that had started or were starting at the time that you guys said, oh, you know, they were able to do it. Like we should be able to figure this out. Yeah, we, in our space, there was, uh, you know, around our time, maybe a little bit later, there's object design, there was Interleaf, there was, uh, I mean, Lotus 123 was just down the street that was really small to begin with. And, you know, oh my goodness, was the poster child for being able to take this notion of a spreadsheet, which was previously invented, VisiCalc, uh, and now turn it into a, an amazing business. Uh, so plenty of examples of kind of software gone, gone right. And we thought we had something, we did have something that was, uh, fun, exciting to a set of, of folks. And we made a decent business out of it for 10, 15 years. Well, 
So what ultimately happened with, this is a center line so software. Right. What ultimately happens uh, where you decide to do something else after that? I, oh, I, I, I stuck around Centerline software uh, until its very last days. Uh, that was a fascinating learning experience that you read about in business school, but of course, I never went to business school. So this was, we had a great product for a particular computer language on a particular set of hardware, so the C language and then C++ on Unix workstations. The market shifted over to a paradigm called client-server computing, and we saw it happening, but there's plenty of other business, and so we didn't follow that shift. Then the market shifted over to a language called Java. Mm -hmm. We didn't follow that shift, and so we found ourselves in a declining market with a product and a company and a cost structure built up to support growth, not status quo and the company went through a lot of painful changes and i was running engineering for for almost all of that and so i got to watch a lot of the mistakes that we had made in the previous years show up yeah i got to see a lot of people that i thought were amazing inside the company to realize that while they were all you know very nice people they were also very lucky people to be in the roles that they were in at that point in time and maybe didn't deserve as much credit as we were giving them because, hey, when the going got tough, then, hey, where are the ideas and yeah. who are the people that, you know, that find another opportunity quickly? And this is around the time, like, is this the 90s when the internet's really like starting to take off, the dot-com boom, that era? Uh, yes, it's basically the 90s through the late 80s and up through 93, 94. Company was on fire, it was growing, it was one of the premier places to work. You were great if you could get a job there. You know, the, uh, it wasn't quite today's levels of perks and benefits, but it was a, it was a fun, good place to work. Steve, uh, one thing I've always wondered is for folks that start companies out of college and they don't really have a lot of work experience or like you said, a lot of mentorship or advisors or what be it. How do you ensure that you yourself are learning and growing and staying ahead of the curve? You know, because when you work somewhere, right, you see how other people do things. You see what you like, what you don't like. You know, when you're starting your own business, it's like, okay, well, shit, I'm on my own, right? Whatever. You might have co-founders, partners, whatever. But I've got to be the one that sets the tone and then people are going to be looking at me, right? So in those, you know, 15 years that, uh, you know, you started your business right out of college, what were you doing or were you doing anything to learn and grow and be a better business leader or be a better engineer or whatever, whatever you were trying to be better at? Yeah, let me tell you the things I should have been doing because I wasn't doing most of them. And I... You know, my strongest advice to the first-time founder that hasn't worked in a company before, preferably a, a small company before, is like, go surround yourself. Get three or four people. Pay them as advisors with equity or just find, make some friends who have been in your shoes before so that you can call them up with the, you know, what will 
you know, 20 years later seem like easy questions, but they weren't easy at the time. And like when uh, you've never had to have a tough conversation with somebody that works for you, the ways to screw it up are way more obvious than the ways to have it have an effective outcome. Whether the effective outcome is the person turns around and becomes great or, or leaves the, you know, like lots of different ways for it to work out. But I learned a lot of those lessons by doing it wrong because I didn't have a handful of people. And then, you know, when the company hits, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 people, like get someone in HR that's done it before that is used to a startup environment, not a big company HR person, uh, who has seen it go awry with very well-meaning founders. I certainly would call myself a very well-meaning founder. To my knowledge, no one's called me names, but I certainly screwed a bunch of things up. So uh, having co-founders that you can share the responsibility with, having a set of advisors, which you have to go network to find, and that can be awkward for or difficult for the with a purebred engineer who's more of an introvert. I put myself in that camp. Uh, but uh, hey, if you're focused on making a successful business, yeah, that's you, you definitely should do that. You can get lucky otherwise. Yeah. But Did you enjoy being in that position? The, the leader, you know, or one of the leaders of a company? Like, was that something that at the time you enjoyed doing? I enjoyed... Almost all except the uh, except the people management yeah. piece. So I was. I, it's not that I enjoyed the hiring, but I was probably pretty good at it because, like, I want somebody that's smarter than I am in at least right. the area you know that what I'm to looking look for. I uh, yeah, and I was mostly hiring engineers, so I, I did know what, what to look for. I uh, I was really excited about the product. I had a very natural passion about what I was building. That would come across. It was a fun thing to work on. We weren't manufacturing, uh, you know, picture frames. Something right. like, who the heck cares? Hey, yeah. this you're selling. So I had the pitch about what we were right. doing, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and, you know, like the, it, the 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 product really was helping people. The right. users like liked it. They gave us awards for it. So it was in that sense a uh, an, an easy pitch. So ultimately, I think I read that the, you ended up selling like half the company or what, what happened with Centerline? Uh, so Centerline had their kind of original products, which were these interpreters, and then later had uh, some additional products for, uh, for testing. And you know, as the market for the original products went down, there was more interest in the testing product. And so the company, after doing several layoffs, uh, like it's going out of business. Do you find a home for some of it? And so the best home was actually to take the testing products, sell them to a company called CompuWare, which had a, a local branch. Uh, and a couple of people went along with the sale. And then the other half of the company was these old interpreter products, which pretty much no one except myself and maybe one or two other people knew how to even maintain, yet you had a lot of major corporations still using the software and still wanting support for the software, be able to call up and ask someone and get updates. Uh, and so I started a small company 
uh, to continue to do that for a couple of years while I was doing other stuff. And that was like a great little part-time gig and it gave a, a soft landing to all the companies that had actually used and wanted to continue to use the old software. Right. So when you ended up, so you ended up spinning out this sort of part of the company that really was, sounds like at the time your core advantage and like, you know, that was like what was working and the rest was maybe not as working as much. Um, sort of after that sale, selling of assets, did you feel like you were in a place financially where, you know, you could kind of maybe pursue more of like things you're interested in and not really worry about money? Or was it like, was money ever like a motivator for you at the time? I, well, I had, uh, for the first several years of Centerline Software, it was all sweat equity. And so I had owned a chunk of the company with my co-founders, put, you know, all told probably 17, 18 years into that. And that was all worth nothing, all of that sweat equity. Uh, the sale price to, to CompuWare didn't even begin to pay back the mm. in, investors. I, the interpreters and stuff that I continue to maintain, hey, that, that brought in some income. That was good. I had a family at that point, right. but nowhere near close to college tuitions or retirements or anything like that. So I was at the point, I'm like, okay, need to go do something else. And I could afford to take a normal salary, but not no salary. So this was likely the next venture, because I had absolutely had the entrepreneurial bug at that point. The next venture was likely to be a you know angel or venture funded company to swing the bat one more time, using all the lessons, a lot of negative lessons I had learned at Centerline, and kind of like try it again, knowing that it could bomb and that would be okay. And maybe I'd take a third crack, but I need to make that decision. But I knew I wanted to go uh, at bat at least one more time. So, so presumably you're in your like what, early to mid thirties, maybe at this point, um, you, yeah, had, you had run this company for 15 or so years. Uh, did, even having that bug was it, and you mentioned having a family, were you ever in a state of like worry? worry and fear of like <laughs> i have kids i have i need to like support my family you know i'm in my mid-30s maybe my peers after college who went and got you know cushy jobs have saved up all this money and and here i am sort of pursuing thing you know entrepreneurship like did that was that everything or did you just have so much confidence and conviction that you would just figure it out i was lucky enough that i had a computer science degree and CS was still a hot field. So I could always fall back on working for any number of great Boston companies as a software engineer. And I did feel confident that my startup experience with all the stuff that I had built, I could get one of those jobs. And my lifestyle certainly never got ahead of my income. So I wasn't worried about food on the table. We did have the condition for kind of the, the next startup, which was TripAdvisor, that, hey, I, I needed some income coming in. It didn't need to match what else was out there, but it, it couldn't be zero like the first company. As much as there's like a minimum viable product, I think there's also a minimum viable lifestyle for entrepreneurs that you have to like be able to, you know, you have a certain lifestyle, you live in a certain place, 
you you have bills to pay like you have to be able to maintain that to be able to keep going on too as well right it, uh yes i would point out that so many companies in the 80s when i started centerline i'm like yeah you couldn't get money to build the prototype there wasn't that type of certainly not for people that had never done it before yeah, right. so we all worked all the founders worked our day jobs you know consulting or or half time or at a medical lab or something to bring in enough money to pay our portion of the rent and a little bit of food and yeah our entertainment budget if you call it was was done we you know, like we were uh happily working as much as we needed to spend as much time building that 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 first product launch not so much a prototype for centerline but the actual first product that we could then sell for enough money so that we could actually kind yeah. of get that loop going. Oftentimes when someone has been through their first sort of foray into entrepreneurship and had, you know, maybe success or not much success with their first startup, obviously you've gained a lot of lessons and oftentimes you could even be jaded by a lot of them, right? When you're coming into the second entrepreneurial venture, you're coming with a lot more knowledge and experience than you were as a young kid coming out of college, right? So uh, a lot of times you might, you know, overthink things or convince yourself not to pursue things because that naivete isn't there as much anymore. Uh, how was it for you? You know, obviously we talk about trip we'll talk about TripAdvisor and what came next, but like me mentally, where were you and what were you seeking to do as your second venture at the time? I was fishing around for kind of what the next idea could be. Because I said before, like I knew I wanted to start something else, and I felt I was just so much wiser, and I actually didn't want to stay in the software tools space because I just spent eighteen, nineteen years there. So, like, hey, let me try something new. I uh, this was you know nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine dot com. Bust hadn't quite come, but the boom was certainly there. So I, I've kind of felt there was no shortage of ideas, lots of wonderful success stories. I wasn't personally ever motivated to like, oh, I want to go start a company that would be the next billion dollar X or or go public. Mm -hmm. I just loved building stuff, whether it was like in my uh, uh, my wood shop at at home or in class or my my big lego castles in my room mm -hmm. or as i got uh to play with my hands in software in, in coding something uh and so kind of with that as a as a goal knowing enough people i felt i could assemble the right you know fast twitch team to be able to produce something and i actually felt pretty confident that hey with the right idea I now had the set of skills and experience that like most of, or all of the last set of mistakes I've made, I won't make again, I'll at least be making new ones and like my odds of success will have gone up a lot. And like the story of TripAdvisor says, yes, I didn't, I don't think I made any of the same mistakes, but hey, we tried something new and for the first year and a half, it didn't work at all. It was a complete failure case and 
yeah, it worked out okay. Obviously, right. we pivoted. <laughs> yeah. So, so going back, you spun off uh, Centerline Software into, I believe, Centerline Development Systems, which is like this kind of spin-out company that you were focusing on. And then you, I think, were planning a trip to Mexico. Is that right? Uh, how does how does the idea for TripAdvisor even come to you? Yeah. So it, it it's a bit of a funny story. I'll try to tell the the short version. I, my wife and I wanted to go on vacation. We're thinking Mexico. We went to a, a travel agent, which was literally the travel agent sitting in a local shop at, at a, a mall for all intents and purposes. And she said, where do you want to go? And we said, we're thinking about Mexico. She goes, where in Mexico? And I'm like, I don't know. Where do you recommend? We're on the East Coast. Cancun's a natural opportunity. Uh, like, where else? Well, there's Playa del Carmen. I'm like, never heard of it. Okay, here it is. Pointed on the map. Where do you want to stay? I don't know. Where's your budget? Well, we don't have a lot of money. And she showed us three beautiful brochures, gorgeous brochures. I remember this, you know, 30 years, practically 30 years later, inexpensive, moderate priced, expensive. I, and I'm like, great. They all, honestly, they look the same to me. So I'm going with the cheap one. I, and, uh, and my wife said, uh, well, let's, let's talk about it when we get home and maybe do a little research. I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. That means you're not going with the cheap one. I, she was very financially savvy. So, (laughs) but she was a little more, uh, uh, ahead of her time yeah. in in this case because uh, she's like, hey, let's go look on the internet, see what we could find. I'm like, yeah, all right. So I used all my search engine searching capabilities and found that uh, there was nothing on the internet about any of these hotels. And so I was really persistent, kept at it, finally found but at the end of the day was somebody's ancient blog post it was before blogs existed about their trip to this inexpensive property where they had also posted photos where some of those photos were clearly not up to my standards, let alone my wife's standards. And so I'm like, wow, that was super useful. We mentally upgraded ourselves. We booked the mid property, had a great time, came back. And on the way back, she's uh, saying like, hey, you're looking for a new company idea. You should start a company that would help people find out what's good and bad about all these properties and everything else to do in the location. And I said, "Yeah, I don't think so." What, why didn't you think it wasn't it wasn't a good idea? Like, oh my god, that's so hard to do. How are you going to find all this information? <laughs> Too many inputs and, and like outputs the and... inputs and like <laughs> I had spent three days searching and it was such a pain in the butt to find this and. And after we had it, how, how are we going to make money at it? Because like, hey, we'd offer this advice and, uh, and yeah, I don't know, maybe I was just in a pessimistic mood at the time, but right. the- The flight the, was bumpy. The, 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 <laughs> yeah, the, Too much the, turbulence. The story goes, it was like uh, a year later, that was still the best idea that uh, right. we had come up with. So I'm like, hey, let's, let's go give that a shot. And we originally thought we could actually crawl the web to get the information. Yeah. Turned out that that was, uh, at the time, too difficult for us to do. Meaning getting all the properties and all those things listed on, on the website? Getting all listed and finding all of those blog posts and individual user reviews right. that were actually already It's like a very manual process. Interesting. Yeah. You wanted to just go and source the existing reviews. And I wanted a search yeah. engine for travel. Because yeah. when I typed in the blank, blank, blank hotel in Playa del Carmen, 
I got back a boatload of travel sites that could book me a reservation at that hotel, completely uninteresting to me. I didn't want to book it. I wanted to know more about it, whether the pictures were accurate, whether people liked it or not. Right. And the internet was just beginning to have that level of info on it. But it was tucked away literally in the GeoCities homepage of someone that right. had posted a little travel blog about them. Like, you couldn't find it. And the search engines most definitely were trying to not surface that information because right. that's not authoritative. That's not branded. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to go take the opposite approach of you know, Google was up and coming at the time. Google said, trusted, branded, what everyone links to. And I'm like, yeah, no, I want to find the page that practically no one's ever read, but right. it's a firsthand account of this hotel or this restaurant sure. or this activity. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash founder hour. Once again, go to shopify.com slash founder hour to take your retail business to the next level today. You mentioned uh, it was the best idea you had had at the time after a year or so of pondering. What were some of, do you remember some of the other ideas you had? I don't. Okay. Can't help you there. <laughs> Lost in the dustbin of history. Yeah. You, you know what's also crazy is that like 98 seems like not long ago because like Pat and I are both 90s kids. And then you look back and like, shit, it's 26 years ago. And it's so crazy how like different, you know, finding and booking travel was. Um, and it's obviously quite opposite, the opposite now. It's almost too easy and you just get to spend a lot of money uh, even if you don't want to. But I mean, was there no other way other than a travel agent to book travel? I mean, what were the other ways you could book travel? You could, uh, Expedia had had come out already, already around, Travelocity yeah. was there. So you could book a hotel, some hotels, and you could book your airfare by yourself. Yep. And those sites were exploding. People loved to be able to do that sort of stuff yeah. all by themselves. They sometimes had info on the hotel. Sometimes it was just the... You know, they being the Expedia's yeah. of the world, you know, a couple of pictures and a price and availability. Mm -hmm. Just again, a hell of a heck of a lot easier than calling up the travel agent and saying, hey, I want this, I want that. Right. It's funny, one of the original ideas, business parts at TripAdvisor was now that we had all this great information, uh, let's go sell a version of it to travel agents because mm -hmm. they're going to want to make better right. reservation, uh, better recommendations. And they hadn't been to almost every hotel they were recommending because they're not right. world travelers themselves. Yeah. Zero interest. Really? Absolutely not. Travel agents don't want to pay for anything. And if you're in the travel industry, you know that there's, you know, travel agents have to get paid somewhere. They get paid by commissions from hotels. Commissions vary. So they just have a very, uh, there are great travel agents out there, but in general, they're swayed by the commissions that they're getting paid. But your but your business model wasn't to kill travel agents. It was just to make searching for what you wanted when you were traveling in the hotels and whatnot easier. Uh, we we were trying to be friendly with everyone, right. certainly with travel agents. Right. And 
I, we love the notion of being able to book a trip by yourself. Sure. But the one thing an ordinary user was missing was the advice on, hey, which of these 10 hotels in LA should I stay at? Right. Which restaurants should I eat at? What are the best activities if I'm going to Cancun? Like lots of very basic questions that a travel agent would know better. Yeah. And so as the internet became popular, people would be searching for all this online. They'd find whatever content was there. And we just thought, man, if you could democratize all of this, if you could eventually get thousands and then millions and then tens of millions of people to be writing about their experiences, you'd have the wisdom of the crowds. And in that sense, we were very much competing against the uh, uh, Lonely Planet or Let's Go Guidebook or Frommers or Fedors or the guidebooks that most of the audience here probably doesn't even recognize the names of. Yeah, but none of those sounded familiar to me. That's how you traveled back then when you went to a destination you weren't familiar with. Well, there wasn't the internet. You picked up a guidebook and you saw their recommendations and you picked from them. Well, the guidebook represented one person's stay at one point in time, usually several years ago, in this one destination. Obviously, a, a great guidebook writer cannot stay at more than a handful of hotels in any city, different price points, and it was out of date, and it was a one-day experience. Whereas, hey, TripAdvisor has 3,000 reviews of this right. hotel. You're getting the good, the bad, and the everything in between, and as a user, you get to read the details. It's not just a one to five score. And TripAdvisor always had, still has a minimum word count. So you don't get any reviews that said, loved it mm -hmm. <laughs> you, 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 or hated it. You get the why. You got to give some more juice. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm thinking of about while you're talking about this and just my brain connected to another idea, but you know, and this is more of a philosophical conversation perhaps that we could take a slight deviation on if you don't mind. But I think about TripAdvisor and all these other travel things or any other technology that makes, in this, let's use travel, travel easier, right, today. Um, and you, let's think about the 80s, 90s, a time where you're, you're using guidebooks, you're going to a travel agent, and it feels as though, and again, just to play devil's advocate here, there's more of an adventure component to that, right? Like, you don't know what you're going to experience. It might be the worst time of your life. It might be the shittiest hotel. It might be the greatest hotel. You might meet the most unbelievable people there. You might have the most amazing food in that city that you don't know about. And now today, it feels as though everything, because it's faster, more accessible, more apparent, it's kind of taken away from the like adventure component or like the anticipation, right? You, you already know before you go there, like, I'm going to go to this restaurant. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. You can't just get lost, Right. Did, did you think about that at the time, or is that something that you've thought about now? I, I've heard that frequently over the years yep. when I was running TripAdvisor. I'm like, oh, don't you feel like kind of bad you're taking away the yeah. spontaneity of travel? And I'm like, oh, I'm calling bullshit on that. <laughs> yeah. Like, you want to plan none of your trip? Go have a great yeah, yeah. time. You want to plan half your trip with TripAdvisor sure. and leave two days completely empty? Go for it. Right. Explore. Right. This is a tool you can use or as not little use. or as yeah. much as you want. It's free. If you want to be spontaneous, I, you know, I adore that. I always try to leave time on right. my calendar whenever I'm going anywhere to just walk around. I love right. walking around right. a new just city. Discover something you'd never thought about. I, 
I don't plan the route. I just go and I try with my sense of direction to remember how to get home. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So, uh, I, I mean, there's a, there, there were a lot of challenges to running TripAdvisor. You had people that would want to like boost up the ranking of their hotel or restaurant because they knew they would get more business. Right. Absolutely true. If you're higher on the list, you're going to get more business. And TripAdvisor, you know, they commissioned a study at one point, like impacted 10% of all travel. People were looking at TripAdvisor, yeah. figuring out where they That's a big go. number. Like, that's a really, really big yeah, number, yeah. and that really big number invites you know fraudulent actors that want to manipulate the number. So we had a pretty big team dedicated to kind of like fighting the people that would try to write a fake review. And and I was always very empathetic to the hotel owner that went like, "Hey, like this isn't this isn't fair. This person never stayed here because there's always two sides to it. There's the like never stayed there, or just didn't want to voice their complaint when they were there. And so we did have a lot of uh, thoughtful conversations about how we're overall clearly helping the industry, but we knew we always needed to be at the top of our game for that. Well, I like the way you phrased it too, that TripAdvisor was like a tool, right? Whether or not you use it and how you use it and how much of it you want to use, that's on you. And I think, and my question was, you know, specifically to travel, but I think that applies more generally to technology period like you know you hear all these like oh my god ai is going to kill every job it's like right there's that doomsday version of it where you could if you believe that then it's probably gonna kill your job or you could start adapting the tools of technology and better your job and better your work and perhaps there's other ideas that you built on build on top of that but it was just a thought that came to my head in terms of travel specifically because i could imagine that's something that people were bitching about at the time it's like oh well you know I want to leave that room for just doing whatever I want to do. Like, I don't want to know if it's a good, good hotel. Yeah, I'd say that was clearly the very small minority yeah. opinion. Uh, and or those folks didn't use TripAdvisor, so they never had a reason to complain to me. You know, e- either yeah. way. Yeah. But the site was massive and had a global reach. You know, it was talking to over a billion people a year. And Wild. like, that's a lot of people who's who had a slightly better trip for having used the tool. Mm. That's great. You know, a slight increase in overall happiness times a billion people a year. That's, that's nice impact. It's pretty like good. Yeah. How did you eventually figure out the revenue model? Cause you talk about some of the challenges early on. Yeah. So we started with a B2B revenue model. We were going to, it's called licensed search results to other travel players because the dot bomb had already happened. You'd already seen a bunch of companies crater that had spent insane amounts to attract eyeballs to their sites. And so we were going to be a bit behind the scenes. That didn't work out for us because there really wasn't anyone interested enough in paying for our travel recommendations and insights, though we tried. We flipped the switch and went direct B2C. And through PR and through search engines, we gathered a following that said, hey, someone searching on best hotels in Boston would be able to find our site or uh, is the Boston Copley Plaza hotel good? Oh, they would find our site and we would do a great job of answering that question better than any travel agent, better than Expedia or any other website. And it turns out that if you give people a lot of information that helps them make a decision, they're grateful. 
they're not actually grateful to TripAdvisor, but they're grateful to the other travelers that took the time to right. post the review such that when we asked them, hey, will you come write a review for TripAdvisor? People weren't very interested. Are they willing to write a review for TripAdvisor? No. Are you willing to write a review to help your fellow travelers? Yes. And so when the messaging switched to uh, pay it forward, all of a sudden the reviews started flowing in. And this was great because it was, I'm like, anytime you contribute anywhere, you feel like you belong more. And so we invented badges and, and we never paid people to write review, but we could reward them with kind of fame and some stature on the site. And you have people that had written thousands of reviews or posted in our forum tens of thousands of times purely because they want to help other travelers with something they know. And that's pretty compelling. And like the whole business grew. And one of my favorite lines about TripAdvisor as a business model was that like how many other businesses can you think of where every employee goes home, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning and the product is actually better because overnight a million more reviews got published. Right. That like, user generated user generated content. and the algorithm got updated. But you a little talk bit. about optimizing the experience from moving from B2B to B2C, but what about the actual revenue? Like how you're making money? Uh, so it sounds like the experience on the B2C side was great, right? Like people loved it. People needed it. People, you figured out a way to get them engaged and to continue to contribute. Uh, how did you figure out how to sustainably keep the company going from a monetary perspective? Yeah, great. So there was a point where, hey, we were six months from going out of business. We had a B2C site. It had some traction. Users seemed to like it. Uh, and we had no no money coming in the door whatsoever. Did that worry you at all? Uh, yeah, we were about to go out of business. I literally, I went to the board and said, hey, we have you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars left in the bank. All the stuff we've tried hasn't worked. You know, we got about six months of runway left. You want me to close up shop early, give you back 10 cents on the dollar and we're done. Like I literally, we did not see a path to success. And this is a year and a half in. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, uh, we had struck one deal with Lycos as a co-brand who brought traffic and brought zero revenue to and, us. And so had you raised money from investors? At we had point? raised uh, yeah. three and a half million. Okay, so you went to them and said basically, should, and they were on our board and like, and, hey, you want 10 cents back because yeah. I, I can't in good conscience say like, there, there's, a, there's a story here because there wasn't. And I didn't realize at the time, but it makes sense now, for an investor to get 10 cents on the dollar back or zero. It's the same. It's the same for them. <laughs> Let's so roll the like, dice. Let's yeah, so they're like, more oh. trouble, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like, they're just like, they're, fuck it. We just less of a write, already. It's less of a write-off. I, yeah. they, let's just say they made the right call. Yeah. They said, keep going. You know, if it comes to it, do an orderly wind down, please. You know, don't. Uh, you but, know, but Steve, I'm they, curious. I want to zero in on that kind of situation. Why? Why had you like? I don't want to use the word give up, but why had you essentially just kind of like throwing your hands up in the air and we're like, I, I don't know what to do at this point. I, 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 I think I had said like, I don't have a plan that I believe in. 
I, right. There's lots of shit I can try. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's very reasonable for you to say, "Hey, take take the money out now because right. um, it's probably not going to work." Right. I've always been with all the boards I've interacted with. You know, a realist. Yeah. About pragmatic. This. Yeah. They understand it's a risk. I made it clear, like. I'm happy to keep going. Like, absolutely. I, you know, I'll be the last last person on the ship here. But like, prudently, I didn't have a story I yeah. believed in. I don't want to come to you guys when shit's already hit the fan. Well, I'm coming already, to you when the shit's flying towards the fan. Yeah, yeah it's already, it's, <laughs> pieces have already hit, believe me. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and they said, you know, to their credit, hey, you know, keep it going. Give it, give it your best shot. We understand these things. Da, da, da. I. Uh, and so we quickly, as a team, said, all right, let's try some banner advertising because travel audience, people click on banner ads and travel banner ad. Like, great. I remember, like, I'm not going to take the time to actually go sell a client on the banner ad. I copied an Expedia banner ad. I put it on the site, and I breathless, breathlessly waited to see a wonderful click-through rate because it was a travel ad on a travel site. This would be perfect. And we did industry average of 0.1%. It was total failure. We tried, uh, the uh, it was called LookSmart at the time, a business listing directory. Like, hey, let's call up hotels, let them sign up for $100. They could have a, a phone number and a URL on their listing for their lifetime. Yeah, uh, This is like the early days of like affiliates, affiliate marketing. We affiliate were trying sales. everything yeah. we could think of. That didn't work either because like, I don't, why don't I pay you? Who are you? Why don't I want to pay you $100? How much traffic do you have? Oh, forget about it. Of the people we even reached. The thing we, we didn't stumble upon, but was you know third or fifth on the list was this cost per click where we had you know 50,000 or so hotels in our system in the US. And when you looked at the Boston Copley Plaza Hotel, you had some user-generated content to see whether it was any good. And we put a link right at the top that said, check rates and availability for this hotel. Because obviously, if you like the hotel, you needed to know, is it available and how much? And that was a link that went directly into the Boston Park Plaza Hotel on Expedia, where you could put in your dates and find price. And that had a great click-through rate because it wasn't really advertising. It was what people wanted to do. And Expedia was willing to pay for that click. Interesting. So that model, which you think of as Google AdWords today, it was just more programmatically generated. We stole from goto.com, predecessor to Google. So it wasn't a particularly original idea, but applied to travel, applied the way we did it quickly enough. Uh, and we turned the corner and turn that into a $10,000 revenue month, again, up from zero the month before, <laughs> to a break-even of uh, uh, 70000 uh, which was kind of our, our break-even point. And did you have agreements where if there was a booking or sale that you would get some sort of commission, or was it purely just pay-per-click, cost-per-click? Uh, the clients chose to pay us on a cost-per-click basis, but they were doing exactly what you point out. They were saying, they sent us 100 leads, five of them converted to bookings. We made you know, $100 in profit on those bookings. For the 1,000 leads, we made 100 in profit. So we'll pay TripAdvisor 50 cents a click and we'll keep the other 50 cents. 
know, that was kind of the math. I'm like, okay. And literally our first order was for 50 cents a click. And that was cheap from their perspective and a fantastic source of revenue for us. And then we got some more travel clients on board and we started doing this for flights as well as hotels. And we very quickly turned the corner because we'd already had enough of the website traffic and now we had them on. Yeah. And and kind of going back to your first business and how like over time as the internet was developed and, you know, computers started to like sort of, you know, people started to iterate on the computer. Uh, Programming languages changed and that affected your business model. In this case, did you feel like this was a sustainable uh, you know, there's like early traction, but did you feel like it was a sustainable revenue model? And if not, like, did you introduce others along the way that outside of this too? It was definitely for, you know, instantly sustainable for the next 10 years and kind of that time frame. Because if a client wanted to pay us on a commission, totally good with that. If they want to pay us on the game changed immediately when the client said, Hey, if the quality of these leads stay as high as they are, we'll pay you for you know, no cap on our budget. Like, awesome. This is in the performance category, not the brand category. There's lots of sites like Expedia out there. We can sign them all up. And now it was just a question of, all right, we have 100,000 users. How do we get to a million? How do we get to 10 million? And so it became a, how do you grow traffic? And how do you do so affordably? Well, so far we were spending zero on customer acquisition costs because it was search engine and word of mouth and PR and CRM. That's great. We eventually added a lot of paid marketing to it, but uh, uh, you know, but most of the company's branding over its lifetime has been organic in one way or another. And how much of your time were you spending on the engineering component of it? Uh, I had uh, a great CTO co-founder in the beginning, replaced by or when he retired, somebody else getting great. So I spent very little time on the engineering. I spent a good chunk of time on the product and a lot of time on the uh, the overall marketing. Yeah, and and did you were you still at a point where you didn't like the people management, or at that at this point did you enjoy the people management? I don't know that I'd ever say I enjoy <laughs> the people management yeah. part, but. I know it is the number one most important thing right. to achieving the outcome, the company's success I'm looking for. So I feel I've gotten not great, but I feel I've gotten you know more than good enough to do it. And then uh, as a leader for the companies up on stage presenting the vision, I was like I was the worst public speaker on record known to mankind before I started Centerline got okay at it at centerline was you know i've done quarterly you know meetings at TripAdvisor forever and then earnings calls and you know and all the rest and and then spoken to very large crowds and like if you want to become good at something and you study hard enough and you pay attention and you watch your own videos like you can become better and i think of myself as a proof point that it can be done because i was terrible at it for sure so um obviously grows at some point uh you sold the business to barry dillard's iac how did that whole deal come about why did you feel like it was the right time to sell the company with hindsight one would say no we should have hung in there for several years longer but at the time when a company comes along and offers 200 million dollars cash for 
a company that's been in existence for four years where it's life-changing money for uh, certainly all the founders. Every employee had options at that point. And is this during the global financial crisis or around before, that time? Right? It's 2004. So, oh, 2004. Yeah, okay, it, a little it, bit before. The, the, yeah. the time was fine. I, but I'm like, absolutely life-changing. <laughs> and, and I fully... Ex- and so I would give... <laughs> The benefit of hindsight, no, would have been worth a lot more. But at the time, I don't beat myself up because it was the right move given the risk profile of of us founders. I thought I would probably last six months to a year inside of a bigger company. (laughs) I wanted like my baby to find a good home and then be transferred over to what they might call professional management or whatever. But uh uh, Interactive Corporation, which was the name of the company that bought us, and then later when we spun out to be part of Expedia, like they did a phenomenally good job. I, in my biased opinion, but financially for them as well, leaving us alone, letting us tap into any of the assets that they had, and said, "Hey, you guys are doing great. We don't want to screw it up. Go, go, go." And with that level of oversight, hey, we certainly made a few mistakes. But it worked out really well, and the original vision of like build the biggest, you know, the most popular travel site in the world, we we were able to achieve that, which is a very different vision right. than the most profitable travel site or or being the best at hotels or whatever. But uh, through being part of Expedia and IAC, we got the financial safety. It was good to be part of a bigger organization well-steeped in travel because I got to learn a bunch of stuff that I never would have. I worked with and worked for some great people there Uh, while we still had our own own little trip advisor and then not so little trip advisor. Then fast forward, uh, Speedy came to the decision in 2011 to spin us out as our own public company because we were a very fast-growing media business, you know, joined into a transaction business and the thought was hey there's more value for shareholders as separate entity they spun us out there was more value was created and uh, uh you know Expedia didn't own any of us uh any part of us so we got to run as a standalone public company and uh it didn't turn out to be so bad either yeah so i guess once it spins out as a public company. Uh, you still continue to run it, right? For a long time, I think 10 years or so, almost. Uh, yeah, from 2011 through uh, yeah, 2022 when I stepped down. 2022. And so I guess by that time, it sounds like you had a great IPO. Uh, I'm sure the company continued to, to grow and enter sort of new different kind of avenues along the way. Uh, what I guess ultimately led to you wanting to sort of leave this baby behind and perhaps venture out into other things? Yeah, great question. Uh, so I, I'd say uh, my age and my desire to follow through on the dream uh, hallucination, whatever you want to call it, of of trying it one more time. Okay, I uh, I love TripAdvisor. Such a great company. It's it's in a awesome time right now with uh, uh, with generative AI coming out. The company, uh, you know, many years ago we uh, diversified away from hotels into experiences in restaurants. That's paying off dividends now. 
like companies in in a really good position. I, but I, I'm 62 now. When I turned 60, I was like, hey, I'm interested. I'm almost 62. I, I was interested in, do I have one more startup in me? Because I always kind of thought I did. But after 20 some odd years at TripAdvisor and never even being tempted to do something else, I'm like, okay, it's pretty clear to me. I'm going to have to quit this amazing gig in order to go do that next thing. Was that the extent of your thought that I have another startup in me, but I don't know what it is yet? No idea what. Okay. But you just, you missed the feeling of starting something from nothing and that early perhaps impact on the world that you felt like you're making like a dent in the world in something completely new. Truthfully, I felt like TripAdvisor could have such a bigger dent in the world if I stayed there. It's a massive footprint, right. massive site. But uh, 22 years doing kind of the same thing, uh, or at least 18 years after we figured out the pivot. And uh, and it's exciting. I love it. I know lots of people in travel. It's a great industry to work in. But like, hey, I'm getting a little, not tired of it, but yeah, looking to think about a fresh intellectual challenge. What's that going to be? I don't know. I haven't had any ideas in 20 years. Better take some time off to go figure it out. And that was the game plan. In a transition like this, as a public company CEO, I was never going to give, hey, four weeks notice and I'm out. Uh, so I told the board, told the shareholders, and you know, nine months later, successor in place. I was part of the search. Great guy. Uh, And uh, okay, now I'm free. And believe it or not, I really hadn't spent any time thinking about what comes next, even in those wind down months. I was going to ask though, like outside of work, because work is this like confined thing, right? And you you ideally want to, I don't know, maybe create some boundary around it. So you can kind of, like you said, intellectual kind of, you know, exercises or just things to keep your mind you know, sharp and interested, uh, like where, where, what other things were you interested in? Um, like, did you, were you like a big reader or what kind of topics or, or things that did you kind of try to tap into and, uh, I guess jog your mind about that perhaps maybe led to what comes next? Yeah. Nothing. Not much. Nothing. Like, and it, yeah, it's, everyone has different personality. Of course, for me, I'm like, when I'm focused on something, I stay focused on that something. And so for 20 years in the shower in the morning, the ideas I'd be having were all about solving a particular work problem or where it could go or how to deal with, or like it, it was, I won't say all consuming because that has a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, I left my work at home and I, 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 unless I was on the road, which wasn't that much. I was home and present for dinner. Like it was just, I didn't take the work calls in the middle of dinner. I I didn't deliver any work calls in the middle of dinner. It was like there was a family time Separate that was very important to me. In earlier years, I'd absolutely go back to work on my laptop from home after I put the kids to sleep, but that wasn't interfering with with the family life. And I kept up friendships and played tennis, but. There wasn't another strong intellectual, uh, you know, if I was reading a book, it would probably be a book about leadership. It would be yeah, something, something related to, so you almost felt like you had to have a, just like a hard cut, not knowing what you, what comes next and just give yourself some time to think about what the next thing is. Yeah. And yeah. so look, circumstances completely different. This hard cut, I'm like, great. I don't need to work anymore. 
I'm like, I'm old enough that I can justify retiring if I want to. Furthest thing from my mind, I couldn't imagine not doing something full time with the huge passion around it. So what was that idea going to be? And I literally told myself, all right, be sure you don't fall for the first good idea that comes around. Put 10 ideas on your whiteboard. Come up with things that you think you'd be interested in. Who's, you know, what problem is this good? Like, I've done enough angel investing to know the questions to ask myself in terms of right. what's the market, what's the market size, who's going to pay for this, mm-hmm. you know, how the founder, what, the, what's the competitive advantage, right. what's going to happen in three years, five years, what are your risks, right. you know, to understand it all. And I, you know, I came up with uh, a bunch of ideas. I, I wanted to stay out of travel. Uh, so this time you went to an insurance agent. Uh, so that market had already been picked through very cleanly. Uh, I was already on the board of, uh, uh car gurus, yeah, which had done yeah. something very similar in automotive space and love marketplaces. Yeah. Cause wow, when you get one, there's a huge yep. barrier to entry. So marketplaces were on the list of possibilities. Uh, and you know, I, I think augmented reality is going to be really massive in, in the future a little uncertain as to how many years in the future and like i want to sink my teeth into something now so like lots of ideas had had pros and cons love you know personalized medicine i quickly found out i have absolutely no skill set that's remotely applicable to doing anything relating to medicine unless it's maybe consumer delivery which was not something i was interested in doing so i'm like Got to rule out a, a bunch of Process stuff. Process of elimination. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, exp- I learned more than I ever want to know about NFTs. I'm, nope. No, thank you. But I didn't. That's have, such a foreign concept now. It, yeah. It feels it, like it's weird. Ago. But like when I stepped down, that was, was one of the, hot, the hottest yeah. things. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, no, I don't get it. I might be missing it here, but you got to go with what your concept. I forgot what even it stands for. Non-fungible token. token. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then that's where I discovered uh, Give Freely because it was one of the 10 ideas on, on the whiteboard. And, you know, I kept them all up there until I was able to cross them off. And there's some, but that was the one I kept like waking up in the morning thinking more about. How did that, others. what was the inception of that though? Like what prompted the concept? You know, I, I learned about, uh, uh, browser extensions, you know, a decade ago when they were first there, and like pretty impressive, the fact that there's well, I'm just backing up. There's a ton of online commerce that's only going to grow. Period. Full stop. These browser extensions are super popular. They've been around long enough to for us to know that they're not going to go away tomorrow. Google could turn off the switch, but they're not going to. So they're here to stay. And you look at how powerful they are. You've got the password managers, you've got ad blockers, you've got Honey or Capital One Shopping in my category, Rakuten. There's literally a hundred more. And you have, uh, you know, create a PDF out of this webpage. You have like, there's a hundred thousand different Chrome extensions out there. And so I'm like, that's fascinating what they can do and then i've separately you know i've been blessed to be able to be philanthropic with uh 
uh, uh, with some of the stuff that's gone well for me financially. And so, I, uh, you know, other folks will turn their attention to philanthropy, but I'm like, oh, there's way too many great causes out there. I have some money, but not an infinite supply. So I'm like, well, is there a business I could invest in or build that could create an ongoing revenue stream for all these charities? Hey, well, browser extensions. And I knew a lot about affiliate marketing from TripAdvisor. So that basic concept of, wow, if you could tap into 2% or 5% of online commerce and have that money go to charities that the user likes, then that's kind of like the stores and that's how give freely works right basically. and it's quite a quite a like a passive thing right like like you mentioned to actively be a philanthropist not only do you have to have money but you have to go out there and see what causes there are maybe get to know you know there's a whole process to that that maybe the average person might not be in a place to go through right so it's, you're sort of creating like a more of a passive way to uh give back yeah so yeah. think about the trip advisor We've democratized travel with these billion reviews and opinions gathered over time to help people form the right decision. Now, if you took, let's just say, out of all the people in the world, let's just say 100 million people, which is a lot, but compared to the world population, not that many, and say, imagine every one of those folks has a browser extension called Give Freely that saves you money as a user when you shop by applying coupons without you having to think about it or do any extra work. And as you're buying the stuff that you would buy anyways, I don't personally want you to buy stuff you're not interested in. There's too much consumerism already, but everyone does buy stuff online. So if you're buying something you're ordinarily going to buy, and 5% of whatever you're buying is going to the charity of your choice, you might save money with coupons, which goes straight to your pocket. That's a win for you. You're buying something at a partner store that's generating, call it a 5%. The store's paying me a 5% commission. I'm turning around and giving that 5% directly to your charity. Charity's clearly happy because they did nothing and they got an extra $5, $10, whatever 5% on whatever you're buying is. Times 100 million people. And now... By a conservative estimate, you're probably generating a billion dollars a year in charitable donations, not coming out of the user's pocket. Stores happy about this because they get they sold stuff. Right. So it's just a cost of goods to them, and they'll pay it all day long without any cap on it. So I got a win for the shopper, save money on coupons, win for the store because they got a, another sale, win for the charity is they got money from nowhere and I turn this you know small personal investment that I'm making in building give really into something that's generating the billion dollars a year. You guys know about Giving Tuesday? Yep. Yeah. Like oh my goodness what they've been able to do on the back of a great cause and publicity going from nothing. I didn't realize that they're like less than 15 years old and mm -hmm. they've mm -hmm. built this movement that's they built generating like a day. They, they like billions of dollars a year. Yeah. Like that's impact. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's a big 
call it a big marketing right. campaign, exquisitely well done. I look at uh, Give Freely and say, well, I'm just kind of taking the marketplace approach right. or the other approach. I'm like, let me get into something that 100 million people are doing almost every day, shopping or every week or however often they do yeah. it. And like, and what's wrong with this picture? And so that's, that's where the company is right now, where uh, we have a product it's in the Chrome store. Go to givefreely.com. It's free to download. We're adding more and more coupons all the time because that's the, a core value proposition from you, every, for you, the user. Every time you buy something at these 10,000 different stores, you get the, hey, the confetti rolls and great. It's that 5% donation made to the cause you selected. How do, how do you make money as the um, company? Uh, in what I've described so far, we don't. Yeah. And I'm the sole shareholder. We're never going to sell the company. We're ideally in 20 years, we'll give it to a foundation that'll continue to run it mm -hmm. at, at infinitum. The, a, a different question could be like, well, how are you paying? How do you plan to pay your bills for the next 20 years? Cause you've got staff and right. marketing expenses and everything. Uh, and I'll, once I have enough users, once give really has a big enough user base, we'll be able to tack on a small advertising model, which I know very well from TripAdvisor mm -hmm. days, non-intrusive to a user, but like if you have a hundred million people using right. your software and you move some of them from one spot to another, like I loved Amazon Smile as a program. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Amazon Smile disappeared. Amazon got greedy. I don't, I don't know the inside reason, but bummer. But I'm perfectly happy to put a little link up on an Amazon product page that says, buy this on Walmart. And some people will click on it. And I mean, Amazon can join my program. That would be great. I won't put the link there. Or they can acquire Give Freely. That won't happen, but uh, <laughs> perhaps one day they might resurrect the Amazon Smile program. Yeah. It was a great one. But uh, with that link to, hey, check out the price over at Walmart, if a user clicks on that link, I'm pretty sure Walmart will pay for that traffic if yep. they convert. So there's a bunch of ways that I can pay the bills. Mm -hmm. The only question is, or the big question is, how long? Uh, how do I get to the 100 million number? Well, yeah, and I, I was going to ask, based on the data you've seen so far, do you think that as a society we'll be in a place where giving back becomes just a, a part of, like, we've gotten used to paying transaction fees to credit card companies, right? It was just, that's just the way it is. Do you think we'll get to a place where uh, giving back is just a part of the pie of, like, consumerism and just making purchases? Well, I'd say you as a consumer, you're not used to commission fees for credit cards because you don't see them right you're paying the price that's listed on the, the lamp or the whatever merchant you're buying. Is the, one that is the merchant's yeah. paying it because they need to take the credit card and credit card companies have a great life oh my goodness the amount of money they print i uh, so if you're asking hey do i think we'll ever reach the point where consumers will will willingly add a dollar to everything they're buying online no i really don't some will at some points, great, but most people know. Will consumers smile when I tell them, hey, the store just contributed a dollar to your favorite charity? The mm -hmm. price was the same. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. And so kind of it's 
it's extremely passive on the part of the user. They don't have to remember anything. And so my, you know, the primary mission is how do I generate a billion dollars a year to charity? The secondary mission is like, and the user selected the cause that they care the most about. Imagine it's a climate change cause. Now they have in their kind of eyesight in the Google search result page, I put that icon there with every search they do. So they see the cause that has some meaning to them. And my secondary goal is to get them more engaged in that cause. So I give the charities a little ability to message those users. And so maybe it's a message, hey, we're having a rally in your area. We'd love for you to join us. And this is to someone that they don't even know, you know their name, let alone you know, ability. But for the charities to be able to pull in more people, to become more connected, that's how that individual might start writing a $100 check a year to the charity because they're more connected and maybe give freely, help them become more connected from the just the constant visibility and the charity being able to give them the right messages at the right time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, this, I feel like uh, this is a very interesting one that I would really like to dive more into, but I, I feel like maybe, maybe down the line, I'm sure it's going to grow and we can have a, a part two. Um, but I know we got we to gotta wrap up. I, we appreciate you coming by, uh, just being so candid about your story and just sharing everything from your personal life and, and everything there all the way to creating these incredible companies. And we can't wait to see what happens with Gift Freely uh, you know, from now to the future. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I would share it is uh, a treat to be able to share the things that worked and some of the things that didn't work in in my past experience and uh uh and yes i can only hope that give freely has the same type of impact that trip advisors had and that's where my passions are directed now thank you sir Appreciate thank it. you all Steve.